No my hooky my welcome back to the Best Side Podcast and this time we are catching up with none other than Denny Moyahu, the big fighter. A big fighter who became the ambassador for the Little Fighters Trust. Entertainer, business owner turned local politician, Denny Moyahu has never been a stranger to controversy and fighting. Since birth, arguably before that even, uh, Denny has been a part of the battle of standing up to impression and standing up for what is right. Carrying on the baton from his ancestors, Dinny is running full steam ahead into a generational defining battle, being one of the many leaders fighting to establish a Māori ward, amongst many, many other things. Big goals are nothing for Dinny though. He was the Taranaki Daily Newsperson of the Year. He has been a TSB Best New Business of the Year. He has competed in Iron Māori, Iron Man, and has raised over $80,000 for the Little Fighters Trust to date. And these are just a few notches on his belt. Get your notepad ready, Fano, for this is arguably our most quotable podcast episode ever. Right here on Best Side, this is Dinny Moyahu, the big fighter. No my bro, it's been a long time coming, I'm absolutely stoked to be uh, having this cordial with you that we're about to get into my bro, so as always, um, the easiest way I find to start out with these cordial is just who are you bro, where are you from, all that sort of buzz. Kia ora brother, what's happening No, You're dealing with Dinny Moihu, aka the D-Man, aka Din Diesel, aka Kia ora. <laughs> Uh, okay, bro, so I am one of seven children. Ooh. I am the second youngest of seven and the youngest of five brothers uh, to my beautiful dad and mum, Peter and Wikitoria Moyahu. Currently reside in Opunake and I've been out there for a good 20 years, but I've done a lot of work within the New Plymouth district in that time. Um, and yeah, very excited, very exciting space to be dealing with currently in my life. Um, and it's yeah, it's been amazing, bro. Where did you grow up, bro? I was born in Auckland, Tamaki Makoto, on the outskirts of GI, oh, yeah. Glen Innes. And I um, I went to Glenbrae Primary School, and that was an awesome school, uh, very multicultural there. And then we, I think we left when I was six. So we returned home, my whakapapa, to Te Ateawa, uh, and Taranaki on my father's side so we moved when I was six to come back home I think dad wanted us to to ground ourselves back in our own uh, space and looking back it was a difficult move because I was only young I had so many friends where we were living but I'm so thankful that we moved back in a time where it was quite uh, tumultuous um, but coming back here and uh, grounding myself yeah Love it, absolutely love it. And then from there, I uh, went to Kapuni Primary, then went to Harwara High School for a couple of years, and then there was a fundamental change as teenagers where my brother Kelly and my sister Tina, we went to Waitara High School. Mm. See, I thought you were always from Waitara, so I'm learning, I'm learning shit already. Oh, that's, that's my home, bro. Yeah. That's my home, that's my heart. I love Waitara. Waitara um, had such a powerful influence in my life and who I am today. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm very staunch, very staunch supporter and advocate of Waitara. Um, but there was as, is, as is most people from Waitara. Yeah. It's a very proud place. When, when we were going into the Waitara was going through their own racial issues. Mm. Um, and we 
we were expecting a massive backlash to the point where we'll be going to a new school with baseball bats um, because that was the perception. It was, there was a lot of negative perception um, etched from the outside towards Waitara. And then, I, then when we got involved in the school, it was the most amazing experience as a young student. I loved it. Eh? I loved everything about it. And that time there was a transition in principals as well. And so the principal that um, came, I, I don't know where he came from, but his name was Mr. Cast. Outstanding. An amazing man. He still, he still lives in uh, New Plymouth somewhere, but a huge influence in terms of um, his ability to bring our community together mm. and then being involved in Te Rōpū Kapahako Waitara, Far out! What a what a beautiful example on how to be how to empower your kids, um, and how to represent Waitara on a not a regional stage, not a national stage, but on a global stage. We got to travel the world in that, and this was where kids were obviously, um, you know, the socio-economic ladder was very low, but we were able to dream. Yeah. We were able to dream. Um, our mentor Trenton Martin and Kapahaka. You know, he did an amazing work with kids um, and got us to, and empowered us to be proud, mm. to be proud, uh, to be Māori. And I've, I've held on to those values and principles um, ever since. It was, it was a beautiful journey in my high school years. Um, and then, obviously, from there, got into hospitality work. Um, first job was at the Devon Hotel. And I, yeah. I, have, a, I have another podcast with our mate, Bodgy and we were talking about um, the old the old marbles days. We were having a laugh about that because I mean I'm I'm a little bit younger than you fellas, but and I didn't really I didn't know you at all then. But it's funny, like I remember, is it? Um, oh, your fellas' bro name used to have the long hair and the glasses. Lawrence. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Lawrence. I, I, kid. I remember him standing out hard, bro, when I was a kid. And then, and then, yeah, as you fellas have told me these stories, reflecting back on your fellas' days at the mill and stuff like that, I'm like. I remember that, but I just didn't know it was you guys. Cause, yeah. yeah, I've got a lot of time for the tenants. Uh, Rosemary and Peter Tennant, they, they were my very first employer. Mm. Um, so they shaped me into, obviously, into a profession where they looked, I don't know if I had natural um, talent. I didn't necessarily have the skill set, but they developed a young man, and that's something that I've pretty much taken forward in my entire career as well. And yeah, it was it was it was awesome, bro. Those were some amazing years. And then we we shifted uh, employers, and then that's where Shirley and David Stones became instrumental in our in our young, gullible, <laughs> innocent lives. Enthusiastic. Yeah, and we've always seen them as second parents, mm. David and Shirley. Uh, they've been amazing to us over the years, and it's you know like. There's a lot of people who have left their imprint on us and who we are today you know, can be uh, attributed to some pretty amazing employers uh, and I feel, I feel really blessed to have um, them throughout my life and it's kind of grounded me um, in the person that I am today. Do you think that that has a big influence on the fact that you do the same for young people now? I've, I've always loved helping. Mm. Oh, you can look back and... Uh, talk to mum and dad, I always had this need to help. And at the start, when I was really young, the reason why I loved helping was I just love making people feel better. And at the core, 
of who I was is because it made me feel good mm. helping others. Not with any expectation yep. of, of having something in return. I just love um, making people happy. And is that, I always talk about the balance between um, like a selfishness and a selflessness, how yep. they kind of bend together because you're being selfless and that you want to help them, but then it's also semi-selfish, which is probably the wrong word, but you don't understand what I mean, I think, because it makes you feel better too. Like, well, I, I don't see it as selfish. Yep. I, I see it as selfless only. Okay. Um, selfless is because there's no expectation on a return. That's a difference, right? That's a dif- it's a huge difference. Um, and you're leading with your heart, not mm. your head. And when we look at us as, as human beings, that selflessness uh, is driven by our, our uh, humanity. And with humanity comes empathy and compassion. And along the ways, especially in times of need, that needs to come to the forefront. Because it's easy to hate. It's easy to um, put people in individual boxes. The hardest part is to rise above and then show your compassion and empathy under adversity and challenges. And I've always led with that uh, throughout my whole life. And you know, people know that I, I can keep it real, <laughs> but I'm always leading with my heart. Yeah. And does it get me into trouble? Oh, Should heaps you. of times. But I know it's, I know it's right. I've done it for 42 years, um, and it's always put me and held me in good stead in everything that I've done, done in my life. Um, and has it, it hasn't come without its own challenges, but it's part of my DNA. I can't help that. So instead of trying to put that in a box and restrict it, I just open those doors right up and just have had it. Let it go. Let, Let it, it go. fly. Yeah, yeah. Just you know, because I always believe uh, in the power of aroha. I've always believed it, and I'll continue to be to lead by that example. So, with your on a circle back, bro, to to your school or to school days, talk to me about that kapaka stuff. Like you said, that it's one of the most, I guess, impactful things you've ever been a part of, and it helped build you as a young fella. How yep. so? Oh, identity. Mm. I think I think it's fair to say there's many of my generation that have not brought up on kura kaupapa or, or have grounded themselves or have two amazing parents who are immersed in tikanga Māori. I think um, the, there is a space where you could lose your own identity. And what I found um, through going through kapahaka is I found myself. And most people can go throughout their whole lives mm. not finding themselves. I was going to say that. And they could be lost, right? Yep. So I found myself in, in Te Rupu Kapahako Waitara and I thrived uh, among all my other um, fellow students and friends in that environment. Mm. And we were staunch, proudly staunch. Not arrogant, but we had this air of invincibility when we were together. And more importantly, we brought our community of Waitara together. Hard. We brought our community of Waitara together. And there was one point at Waitara High School, we almost had two thirds, over a hundred students in our kapahaka group. So it, it was amazing. Um, then we created uh, the Waitara High School haka, 
in my time, we went and won um, national uh, kapaka competitions. Uh, we represented Aotearoa in a global indigenous festival held in Taiwan. Oh, wow. Yeah, we represented... How old were you when you were there? Uh, I might have just got out of high school. Uh, and it was, it was my first trip overseas ever. And so you've got these young kids in a low socioeconomic kind of platform to to who you where you can restrict their dreams mm. but traveling overseas you realize how small of an environment that you live in but how big the opportunities could be and i i loved it so yeah i'm very staunch i have um to this day lifelong friends from that kapakarupu and it's grounded me and continues to ground me Let's talk about identity then, bro, since you went there. Why, why is it so important? Well, it's your sense of belonging. So your identity to be your true self is to be comfortable in your own skin. Comfortable. And when you've been brought up with generations of an environment that challenges your identity, mm. if you're not strong enough in who you are, you will always lose yourself. It might sound silly, but that's, I've actually never looked at it that way in terms of your identity being like your your sense of self-belonging. Yeah. Uh, that makes complete sense, and I feel almost silly for not making the, the parallels. Well, for those who are disenfranchised, they understand this. They understand this. All minority cultures globally understand this. And to be able to find your identity and to be grounded in that identity allows yourself to move forward. In spite of whatever challenges that are put before you, you are strong in you. And then through that goes your mahi. You are strong in your mahi because you are strong in you. And your influence grows because you are strong in you. And you become staunch because of it. And then what you do is that you allow your influence uh, to positively impact others and get to see the, the world through your lens to find better understanding to move forward. So I was fortunate that as a young teenager, I got to find myself, my sense of belonging, my identity, and I've carried that ever since. And when you talk about Indigenous people globally fighting for their identity, or, or is, like, is it colonisation, or what is, is that what's made us lost, or had to, I guess, go in search of it instead of having it in the first place? Well, if you have a look at all the indigenous people around the globe, there's something that's similar in every country for those who have been colonised in terms of negative statistics throughout all of them, the oppression, the, the uh, disenfranchisement, um, the laws that were designed and implemented. You can have a look at any indigenous culture and the similarities of the negative effects that has happened today mm. because of what happened in the past. And that is through colonisation. But there's also opportunity. So the opportunity comes from is that we need, in our community, more people to understand the grievances of the past, to help them move forward um, together. Mm. But there is... a clear evidence that shows the amount of ignorance and to be honest I think there's a lot of innocence in that ignorance mm. 
People don't know what they don't know. But then there are those who have educated themselves to find better understanding. And still choose to. Still choose not to want to know. And there are those who have provided themselves a better understanding to perhaps change some of that historic conditioning that they were taught. Mm. And a lot of the things that we were brought up on is based on past trauma or conditioning that then's implemented into you as a child. But it's just behaviours. When you dive deep into it, it's just people's behaviours. Where did those behaviours come from? It was taught. Where were they taught from? And it can go right back to, to your upbringing. What do you say then, because it's one of my pet peeves, I'll admit, when people say things like, you know, whether it's, whether it's Indigenous people or just people, I guess, going through or living out the experiences of trauma, you know, what, what do you say to people that say, oh, just get over it? Yeah, cool. Yeah. And they've got that right to. Mm. It's because they don't know. You know, we've been trying to get over it. Mm. And then you have a look, and there are laws designed for us not to get over it. Yeah. And then when people say get over it, why should we? Like, why should we, those who have been disenfranchised, those who have been oppressed, when it's still relevant today? So how about those who tell us to get over it? You get over it. <laughs> and understand that there was a deliberate attempt by the Crown to exterminate Indigenous people of Aotearoa. Mm. Fact. Deliberate. So I've, a lot of my engagements at the moment, because, I mean, I've, I'm not going to say victim, bro, because I don't see myself as that way, but I've, I've started stirring up, I guess, or generating conversations around all this. And so I'm getting the, the fake pro, pro, fake profiles on Facebook and stuff send me abusive messages and things like that. And it's interesting, man, like, just to see how archaic some people's thoughts and stuff are. Not even, like, you can believe what you want to believe, I guess, but I don't understand why people think... Oh, okay, I'm going to send this fella an anonymous message um, or a fake profile message of abuse and aggressiveness and hurtfulness and it's going to change his mind or and it's going to help things or he's going to see my point of view. Or do you think they're just trying to hurt, be hurtful? Oh, there's a couple of things. I think just, you know, people want to vent. Mm. They want to vent and they actually find courage and confidence behind the keyboard. Yeah, yeah. So... A big fucking problem right now. Yeah, it's a problem, but it's present. It's here. Yeah. People have got so much courage behind the keyboard. <laughs> um, so I take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you can have so many people comment and have commentary about any type of discussion. My challenge to those who like talking, what are you going to do about it? Mm. So you like talking about it, like having a piss and moan. But what are you actually going to do about it? Are you going to stand? Or are you going to continue to be a sideline commentator in the safety of the comfort of your surroundings? But when you start, when you start scratching at the service and putting yourself out there, then you're under enormous pressure and you're under this enormous um, cloud of judgment all the time, yeah. constantly. Even worse now that there's social media. Yeah, yeah. You can't make a mistake. You can't make a mistake. 
And what you can't escape it, right, as well. Like, when you think we're getting bullied at school, you go home and you just don't see them again. Well, you're at home now, that connection's still to your house. And you yeah, well, well, people have... People have feelings. And often at times, the intent of a conversation through social media, especially if it's just content, not video content, your intent may be different to what the perception will be when you open that discussion up. Mm-hmm. And you've got 100% control of the content you put out there. 100%. You're not forced to do anything. <laughs> Everything is an option. Force words you can, me up yeah. at the moment because you know why. <laughs> you can choose to do it or not. Yeah. What you don't have control of is how people react. And when you understand that and you know you've got influence, for me personally, you have a duty an obligation, you have a duty of care and an obligation to be responsible in how you conduct yourself. Now that's just me. And regardless of whether or not I was on the council or not, I know that my words have power and influence and I have to be mindful because not only what I say is going to affect uh, outcomes, reactions, consequences, good and bad, but it also affects my children. It also affects my wife. It affects my family. And so I, I take what I say seriously, but I also can have an open conversation with anyone, kānohiki to kānohi, face-to-face, um, just to find better understanding. And that's what I love to do. People can have a all with me. They can walk away still feeling strong about themselves and their views, but at least we've had the kōrero. I'm, I'm, I'm open to discussing, and there's a lot of things that are happening, especially in this space this year in particular with COVID and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And you're going to have commentators, and you're going to have commentary. For me, it's, well, what are you going to do about it? Mm. The actions to the words, eh? Always the actions. That's what fucks me off too about this whole, the, the Māori Ward stuff, is that, there was an opportunity for people to come and have deputations or quartered or at all these meetings, at all the council meetings, and to say something. And no one, well, no one that I saw a post or said anything aloud. But then now everyone wants to get tough behind the keyboard, bro. It fucking fires me up. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> but, the, but I knew that was going to be the reality. Oh, I knew it was going to happen too, bro, but I just... You know, it, it doesn't surprise me. No. But they had every opportunity to share their views. Mm. And then one of the concerns was that they're scared. And I'm like, okay. So there was fear amongst councillors. There was fear amongst council staff because of what happened six years ago. The thing is, for, uh, let's say, Māoridom, we've been in this space for 200 plus years. Mm. We understand the fear. And in spite of feeling that fear, we still press forward for progress, we still do it. Our people have their own anxieties about standing up to doing what's right because they know what the consequences oh, will be. Bro, I'll, tell, I'll share this with you. We've got um, a work conference coming up and I got asked to um, record a mihi mihi for it just to whakatau everyone for our conference. And bro, even that was like freaking me out a little bit because I was like, okay, what are they gonna pick on? Who's going to be upset that I've not done it the way that they mahi? Like, all those sort of things. Yeah, but so you, I look at that, bro. You just be you. Yeah. 
they they asked. I still did it. Yeah, but I just wanted to confess. I had a moment of fuck, which is. But that's the realness. That's the realness. Oh no! Every single counsellor, regardless of the regardless of the decision they made, there would have been some anxiety because of the the outcome and the repercussions that were to follow. Mm. It was the the norm for me. That's like the interesting kind of shift that I see. Like we've talked about how like people were scared to speak up. Like let's that are anti the war. You know that was the that was the the, the story. Well, that was right? part of some narrative. Yeah, yeah. That was that was part of the narrative. Correct. And it's 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 an interesting shift because, well, is it even a shift? Are they both happening at the same time? Like I remember, it wasn't too long ago that people were scared on the other side to to be pro war, yeah. and now there's fear with. Anti-war, or is there fear with both? Like it's just a weird, a weird. It seems to be that the the louder narrative is that there's fear with being, or people don't want to say that they're anti because they've there's fear of the backlash. Absolutely, it's the backlash. But here's the thing: with the twelve councillors that voted in support mm. of establishing the Maori ward, they all understood that the backlash was going to come. And it did. And it absolutely did. A lot of it was private. Yeah. But who was the backlash from? Wasn't from Māori, did Yeah. And if you were afraid, who are you afraid of? That's the thing. It feels like, and I, and I can say this because I've had people say these things around me, it feels like that there's a fear, like part, well, one thing that they're fearful of is that if we're gained the equality, or I guess if we're gained, if we're granted the what's rightfully ours under tutility, we're going to shaft them and fuck them off? Well, we're going to do what they did to us. That's the fear, right? Yeah, here's the thing. That's their narrative. Yeah, yeah, ours. exactly. It's because what they see is, is they see themselves starting to become a minority. Mm. And as our multicultural... Um, kind of like uh, communities start to start to flourish then it's like well what comes from being a minority because when you were the majority and you had all the say all the power now what's happening is there a is there a, a balance tip yeah where it's not overcoming it's actually finding equity and equality and for for our generation it's always about the future because my father and his generation uh, forged ahead off the back of his um, tupuna and mm. their generation to inch toward progress. And so my generation is now responsible to continue to inch towards progress. Can we do better? Can we be better? The answer will always be yes. Will it be easy? Hell no. <laughs> but do we just give up when things get hard? Mm. Do we give up when there's another wall put in front of us? Or do we continue to chip away because all I think about are my kids and my grandkids and every other um, generation's uh, children and grandchildren moving forward. You know, there are so many more bicultural relationships now than ever before. And again, I said this, what we see in our kids is the best of us, regardless of their ethnicity. Mm. And all we're doing is progressing. Now, I've got so much hope because I believe 
that the next generation coming through will be better educated in this space, uh, especially around our country's history, to make better decisions uh, moving forward for our country. I'm, I'm always filled with hope, and my hope's not like blissful ignorance. It's set in stone because of my beliefs that we can be better and do better, so why don't we? You know, I always say this um, to prep me, because I'll always make decisions based on hope, not fear. But fuck fear. Mm. 100%. You, you do not owe me that. And if I, if I have that, I will still push forward, regardless. And I will make the decisions based on the hope that I have for a brighter future, where our children and grandchildren will, uh, will thrive. Let's, you brought up your dad then, bro, so let's run, run that. I think his story is kind of important to share with people because, like, and I mean this with all respect for me, bro, your dad's a gangster. <laughs> he's old school. Yeah, he's yeah, old school. He's a fucking gangster. And so, like, bro, tell us about, I guess, what from what you understand as, as his son, about his, his story and how he came to be involved in... The, the mahi which you now carry the po for not that he stopped he's still doing shit but tell us yeah I remember having a cordial with dad a few years ago and I was like you know because it's fair to say when you're a child anyone who's a child of someone who's political regardless of where you stand it's tough it's tough because as a child you know you think the world of your parents and what you don't want is for people to not think that way, or to dislike, or to run them in the ground. And I've got a lot of empathy and compassion towards the children of public figures. I mean, take for example, uh, Anaru Judd, he was only doing groceries with his kids, and he got spat at in front of his kids. You know, and um, politics brings can bring out the ugliness in people, but we'll discuss that further. But for that, I asked him, you know, why you? And he was like, you know, because I, I was, as I was growing... You mean, why are you doing this work? Why, why do you have to do it? Why can't someone else do it? <coughs> yeah, because I was just saying, you know, like, <coughs> I, as, as his youngest son, I think I felt the fear of perhaps this may be a pathway for me. Um, and I, I was quite full on at that part there uh, in my life. And then so I just asked him about his journey. And he, because he thought perhaps his older brother would, would pursue and carry on that legacy as the oldest brother. And then uh, the oldest brother didn't. And then he thought his second oldest brother perhaps would carry on the mahi, and he didn't. And so I asked, well, why you? And he goes, well, if not me, son, then who? Mm. And we've been, we've seen his journey throughout all my life, all the battles, um, you know, all the scrutiny. And it's, it's challenging as a child. And so when you grow up, you could build up. So you said bricks and shit thrown at your house and use the kids and stuff like that, right? Or was it, did I get that mixed up or like? Everything that you could ever think of. Uh, even when it comes to death threats and all that sort of stuff. I mean, this was the... This so was what the was reality. he doing that was ruffling the feathers? 
Just because I know these people that don't know, bro. Yeah, standing up for Māori them. Yeah. In what way? What? Well, speaking out. See, in that time, mm. in that time. When was this? 70s? 80s? Oh, dear. Well, when you look at it, you know, I mentioned about a young lady by the name of Nida Glover. She's now a Dane. And she was reprimanded from her job and almost fired for simply saying kia to her customers. 84. Mm. And in that time, uh, how dare you talk to us like that? <laughs> and, like, you know, he has branded everything from a radical to a terrorist, everything that you could imagine. You know, my first protest for was... For saying kia no, for sticking up for his people. And he was one of many generations who worked hard and advocated on behalf. And now what people are seeing today, 40 years later, is actually finding better understanding to understand the, the atrocities that were committed to uh, Māori. Mm. And then now they want to be part of the solution. And that's beautiful. So he's had a lifelong career. Hasn't been easy. Uh, there's been many battles. Um, and we've been there for the ride uh, practically all of our lives. And so... Do you guys ever talk about how, like... You know, because I've not spoken to you, like... I, um, I am thankful, but I have to admit, I do get emotional and probably a little bit angry, like when... You know, like someone like your father who fights for so long for things and gets progress, but like small incremental progress. And then say our Anadu Judd makes a stand and in three years we see some pretty vast changes within the the community, in my belief anyway, from their perceptions and shit. Does, like, I, I, and maybe it's my ego, I don't know, bro, but if I was your dad, fuck, I'd be wild in a way. Like stoked for the outcome, but I think I would be pretty, a little bit... Annoyed. Yeah, but that's when you start thinking about how it affects you instead of the outcome. The you goal. Know, what's the goal? To have equity and equality. That was always the goal. It, was, it had nothing to do with that, and he'll tell you. Yeah. Nothing to do so with that. So it doesn't that. matter who does it as long as it gets fucking done? Well, as long as you know what the purpose is. And so... But we also knew... When you're in this space for so long, bro, you, you understand where the secret is. So my father has been part of incremental change. Yep. And then someone comes along um, who's Pākehā, who finds understanding and is shocked about the discoveries that they've had, and then he wants to be a voice for change. The reason why they had such a blow-up is because he was Pākehā. Mm. That's amazing for me. Yep. Because it means that he was able to lift the veil from his eyes and see the world through Tangata Whenua. That's where the change come from. And it was confronting. It was confronting for him. But he chose to take that path, that journey, for a better world, for a better tomorrow. So it wasn't about him. It was about he has now got the opportunity. And that's what you're seeing now. There are more of our Pākehā brothers and sisters who are actually starting to lift the veil and see where there's opportunities. And the opportunities are beautiful. Mm. But again, it's this conditioned fear based on ignorance that is holding people back. You know, there was this uh, quote that I love, is that 
Fear is the province of old, and hope is the province of young, or youth. That, that to me makes perfect sense. Yep. You know, when we challenge our traditions, when we challenge the status quo, it's because we feel that there's a better way because where we are currently feels like you're stuck mm. or you're based on uh, this foundation that's outdated. So what do we do? How can we move forward together? There are always better ideas. It's just how do we get there? And uh, for me, I'm, I'll always be hopeful. I'll always be hopeful where, where we're going to head in this direction because in my lifetime, I've, I've physically, visibly seen the change. Because now, most people say Kilda. <laughs> you know, 1999, when Tehine Wehimuhi sung the Māori version of the national anthem, All Blacks versus England, global audience. I was so proud. It was a proud, it was a beautiful moment. And then she was bastardised, ridiculed and persecuted in her own country. How dare you sing the Te Reo version? How dare you? Guess what? It's the norm. Mm. So when we look at change, if it's for the better, sometimes people cannot see your vision. And that's okay. Because sometimes it's not about them seeing what you see. It's about you proving that it can be done. Because people will continue to put up walls of impossibility. It can't be done. There's no progress. And then there's going to be someone who'll be like, watch me. See Edmund Hillary. Yeah. You know, Kate Shepard. You know, there's many examples of people in this country that became world first. World first. Against insurmountable odds, they were able to achieve the impossible. And then by achieving the impossible, they made it possible. I'm in pursuit of achieving the impossible. Just as a person, yep. whatever I choose to pursue, but that's the challenge I relish. I know there's going to be naysayers and people that would just roll their eyes. That's cool. <laughs> but I've, I've built up a portfolio of achievements that I once thought was impossible for me that I've achieved and made it possible. Do you think that's addictive? Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> yeah, my poor wife. Yeah, it's 100% addictive. I thrive off the challenge because I, I look at how can I be better as a person? How can I do better? And it's always... And how can you encourage others to be better too, right? Well, you can do that mm. by being the example. Yep. So I got elected by the city wall that I'm so humbly grateful for to represent um, on the New Plymouth District Council. Yep. Love it. I love it. It's, it gives me purpose. And I'm the third in almost 100 years Māori councillor to be elected. And I'm humbled by that too. And But I knew the, the odds. I just rolled the dice and said, let's do this. Did you roll the dice though, do you reckon? Do you still like, I mean, you put in some fucking work, bro. So Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. But it was methodical. Mm. I, I, however, I understood what I was up against. Yeah. I understood the odds. 
I understood the odds that were not in my favour. Yeah. But that can prevent someone from standing. Yeah. When you understand that. I'm just like, man, I've, I've worked my ass off. Um, so now it's time to see if it's paid off. And it has. But I'm not stopping there. There's so many other goals uh, in my personal life that I want to achieve. Um, and well, can you share some of those later if you're open to it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but I've, I've just decided that in order to achieve what you want in life, it's about strategizing, planning, setting goals, find a pathway to reach that. And the secret source where everybody's wondering, everybody wondering, how did you do it? And there's no secret. It's just head down, ass up, and work as hard as you can. And making the mistakes, right? A lot of people are scared lose. to make the mistakes, or they stop at the first mistake. Yep, yep. Like, you just got to, like... Be relentless and throw yourself at more shit. Yeah, make the mistakes faster and harder. Yeah, make the mistakes, but surround yourself with good people. Surround yourself with people who are on the same journey. Mm. Learn from their mistakes. Build this, build this environment where, uh, where you can look towards others for help, and they can back to you as well. It's, it, the environment is so key. So that one of my biggest things that I love is proximity is power. So have a look at your proximity, your environment. If it's not where you want to be, but you see an environment that that's where you're heading, well, change your environment. Mm. You know, if it's if that environment's competitive, if it's uplifting, if it's so positive and wants you to succeed, but you're in an environment where it's all negative, everybody's self-interest, and it and it just individualized so when you're talking environment like you're talking about like the people you hang out with yeah the, the place where you work and just where you spend your time and stuff where you, where where you, you live as well where you choose to spend your time mm. so sometimes the circumstances can't help it but you can still have a choice to find a pathway um, of change of progressions to find yourself a mentor um, of change of progression and then that again in spite of all that's against you, still a choice for you to do it. It might be harder work for some, but it's still your choice to achieve that. So I look at my environment, I look at where I want to be, and I look at surrounding myself with people who are on the same page, who are on the same co-papa, that want to see success in their own lives, whatever that looks like. Yeah, I jump on that wagon, and then let's fly. You know, because the other thing too is, Success can mean anything to anyone, as long as it means everything to you. If you want success, what does that look like? For some, it's just having a wonderful relationship. Some, it's just having uh, to be a positive role model for your kids. Whatever success looks like for you, if you want to achieve it, it comes down to what are you willing to do to attain it. One thing I want to talk about <clears throat> while I've got you here, because like a lot of people don't understand it, a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions about it, and I feel like you would have a, I don't want to say watered down, that's wrong, but a digestible way to, to answer and clear up some of the stuff. So um, the Māori Ward, bro, what is it and why is it? So <laughs> the Māori Ward was established by central government, Wellington Parliament, um, based on tetiriti, to give a voice for Māori aspirations. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the history 
of a lot of decisions that we made, a lot of laws that we passed that hindered any progression, that hindered any form of partnership, sovereignty, that hindered a lot of the participation and progression for Māori. This was an opportunity to share Māori aspirations uh, in a decision-making process where hopefully it will enhance not just Māori aspirations but the aspirations of the community. And so when that came in, it's funny because why is it always before a national election? Yeah, but I do look at the construct and even the intent the intent may have been to be a positive intent or it was similar to when they said that police can come into your place of dwelling without a warrant and then they made uh, included the marae as well. The intent might have had good intentions, but the perception was completely wrong. Yep. The perception from us was that how dare you, and even those in dwellings, how dare you uh, bring law without a warrant into our homes because then what can be interpreted from there? So I'm going to come into your home without a warrant that could lead to other things that, um, that could be deemed unwarranted. And when they added the marae in there, our people felt attacked straight away. Mm. But that's the thing where those in these chambers can have all the best intentions, but how it's interpreted could be completely different. And you've got to you've got to be mindful. You have to be mindful that the decision you make, there is a difference between your intention and the perception, and that perception can be strong when it's from the public, who you represent. It's like a product in marketing, right? You might, yeah, you might design a product for something, but if people don't know what that's for, yep. then they're not going to use it. Well, if you tell them this is what it's for then it doesn't work, work that way. Well, take, for example, Facebook. The intention was for you to connect with family and friends. Yep. Now look at it and how it's perceived. You know? It's a completely different machine than what its intent was for at the beginning. And you can say that about many decisions. Mm. So for the Māori Ward, do I think it's a positive um, kaupapa? Absolutely. Do I think it's a, um, you know, because one of the concerns is, well, where do you stop? Why do we have to stop? Took us two hundred years to get here. And stop to what? Like what, yeah. what are we trying to, to stop to partnership, which well, we should be having anyway. Well, or? stop for progress. Yeah. Stop to make better decisions. Stop to hear more voices. So, what misconceptions are there about the ward? Like, I know, say, like one I can speak to. It's pretty simple. Well, you tell me what are misconceptions that you've heard, um, and then I'll give an answer. Okay, then. So, misconception might be that it's unelected, that they that, that Māori just picks someone to put in there. Well, here's the thing about the Māori war, mm. for those who don't know, you don't have to be Māori to stand for the Māori war. So that's a big one. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah. You can be Pākehā, you can be Asian, but you're there to represent the aspirations of Māori. Mm. And there are amazing, um, amazing Pākehā who could stand... Uh, to represent the aspirations of Māori. There's other uh, amazing cultures and ethnicities who could stand to represent the aspirations of Māori alongside any aspirational Māori candidate. Mm. So oh, the requirements are very quite simple. 
requirements to stand is that you've got to be on the uh, electoral roll and that you need to, you need to be 18 years or older and you need two people from the New Plymouth um, electoral roll to, that are on the, the Māori roll to nominate you. Anyone can stand. So one of the misconceptions is, you know, from that is just to answer with what anyone can stand. With the Māori ward as well happening, and like, is there any sort of education that's going to be happening, like, because you're within council, for those that don't know, is there any sort of education that's going to be done by council to explain to the public how it's going to work and stuff? Or can you even speak to that? I don't know, bro. Yeah, well, like I said, bro, I'll just, I'll, I'll just share my views. Yep. But I know that there are corridor within council offices to try and uh, piece together educations, but the only, the only one of many other uh, sources and resources of information that people can educate. And I think, um, you know, what I'm excited about is that this is something that I think all of us are experiencing relatively the first time where there's a real proactive approach of finding better understanding. Mm. And I've had people say, I don't even understand it. And that's awesome because it allows you a platform to just have a corridor. For sure. Um, and not necessarily to try and force an education on them, yeah. but the corridor basis allows them to be safe in an environment where an issue can be quite contentious. Yep. And I suppose um, if you've got the right information, you can still, is to make a better informed decision. And that's where I feel like there's, there's an opportunity there. What do you say to people then that claim that the Māori ward is undemocratic? Yeah, undemocratic, it's separatist, it's all of that sort of stuff. Yep. You know, we are all one people. Why are you taking advantage of, of that, you know? And like, here's what I say. For all those people who have spoken like that, and there's been many in my lifetime, it's funny when they talk about how Māori are getting all these special rights, getting all these special grants and all that. The same people who talk this way are the same people do that do not acknowledge about... Um, the attempt to exterminate our people. Mm. So they talk about what we are gaining. None of them talk about what we had lost as a people. Yeah. All right, bro. Well, because um, we are going to be, we're on the radio these days. The podcast has moved to the radio. We're going to take a quick break. But then when we come back, I want to talk about the Green School. We'll, we'll take that. Take Kill bro. Sweet. All right, bro. So we can't move around it. Uh, a lot of people want to hear from both of us, I guess, but definitely you for sure, around our Fukaro or your Fukaro around uh, the, the Green School situation, bro. Let's just call it that. So, I don't know, where do you want to start? What, what are your thoughts in regards to um, that grant that's been given to that kura? Yeah, that kaupapa. I mean, when the announcement happened, um, you know, you saw this overwhelming flood of disapproval from our community. And to be fair to them, they had every right. Uh, I mean, I, I was the chair of board of trustees, and most times I see the principal constantly um, applying for funding. And a lot of our schools around the country um, are constantly applying for funding. And it seems like after years and years of getting a very small amount, and then from their perspective, seeing a private entity, a private school, getting 
um, that amount of funding, mm. um, yeah, the backlash once you saw it unfold um, has only been even more polarizing because mm. we're in an election as well. Yeah, and you know, I've got I've got very close friends that work as kayakal as teachers who who. Um, at the green school, you at mean? At the green school, yep. and I've got uh, close friends who are teachers at um, at our state public schools, and you know. So when I look at the issue, the reaction that can be instant, where for me personally, I need to collect the the information and the evidence so I can have a measured response. So when we look at um, how that affected the community how tough it was for for teachers to see that unfold, it's fair, it's appropriate. And then I look at what the the Green School um, did through their own application, based on the Shovel Ready projects, that they applied, just like many other organisations around Taranaki, to see if they can access some government funding to help with their projects. Now, when that came out, there was a lot of backlash towards uh, the mayor. There was a lot of backlash towards the Green School, and there was a lot of backlash towards obviously government. Well, bro, though, even those those friends that we mentioned, like they're mutual friends that yep. you and I both have, and they're the teachers. They don't have anything to do with funding or applications or anything like that, bro. They're copying it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and I. I I feel for everybody that's affected in this because now it's a political football. Yeah, yeah. That's what it is now. Uh, so let's let's channel the focus. Let's channel the focus. The Green School applied on their own. And in terms of writing a letter of support from the Mayor, the letter of support is what he's always offered to any organisation uh, from Taranaki who has an opportunity to access some government funding for Taranaki. And in total, it was over $240 million Taranaki uh, got access to. That's funding from central government. And so when I look at the Green School applied um, for the application, and when they were approved, you could see through the other lens from all these other teachers, um, all these other families who go to these state schools, you can understand their mind, mm. their pain points. And um, it, when it comes to the government, to be fair, that's where you should be channeling and directing all your mind. Mm. Because... Um, even though the Green School applied, they were just as one of the many others that may have been declined. Mm. And with um, with all the other state schools, while it highlighted to me, and this is what I love, is that it has mobilised, mm. again, a sector of our community that is saying enough is enough. And so when we look at the dynamics on who is it affecting, it's affecting our whole community. All the political football for the country now yeah. in, this, in this particular topic. But let's channel the energy, and this is only my opinion, mm-hmm. let's channel the energy in the right direction, which should be um, focused on 
the approach that happened and what we're seeing unfolding in government is, you know, partial accountability. But now there are more conversations being had on how that got approved. Yep. But our state schools, our teachers, our principals have been severely affected because of the hard money to try and access funding through Ministry of Education has been. And then you've got the Green School, where the intention would have been um, in a good space. And that's what I talk about, uh, the intent versus the perception. And now through this difficult process of trying to navigate through um, the court of public opinion, it's what does the Green School do now? Um, What will the Ministry of Education do? Now that they they now, well, the inadequacies the inadequacies have been pointed out. Yeah, but you know what I love is when when our teachers mobilise, shit gets done. Man, it, it's 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 a powerful example how you can create change. Mm. Who's really going to be affected? Kids, our kids, and that just does not cut it for all teachers mm. for our communities. And so um, there will be battles to come because of this. Mm. But I, for me, I would rather us have these conversations. But let's let's direct and channel this um, the the mamai into the direction which is the decision to approve was made by central government. There's the argument, bro, that. By participating in said system, that is where the Green School are at fault, is that they are upholding the system by applying in the first place. So we've talked about a lot about a system that, I guess, discriminates. What are your thoughts around that? Are they at fault for even applying or participating? Are they, are they fueling the motor of, well, of privilege, so to speak? I'm not going to speculate on the motivations of why the Green School applied. Mm-hmm. It's not fair on them. I think if you want to have a court at all, they'll be the, they'll be the perfect um, people to speak on that. But again, it's intent and perception. And whatever the intent was, the perception from the public was completely different. And so what do we do now? But... Um, the backlash that I've heard from my friends who are teachers at the Green School, from some of my closest friends who aren't wealthy, they just sacrificed for their children to attend that because the current education system is not working for their kids. Mm. And so they sacrifice heavily. They're not wealthy, but the change that has been so positive on their children is the reason why they're sacrificed. And then you've got, obviously, um, our hard-working teachers in state schools, hard-working principals in these public schools who are working just as hard um, to create a positive environment for their kids. And yet their own rooms are falling apart. Hmm. You know, you empathise and you sympathise because they're not wrong. Of course. wrong. Yep. You can't dismiss a person's feelings, right? Because a, a, a person's feelings are a person's feelings. No. 
So um, when we when we look, and this is going to be played out all the way through to the election. Yeah, it's going to be dragged out now. Yeah, and like, to be fair, I, I like your analogy of the political football because it's it's going to be kicked right through. Yeah, but when you look at now, you've got politicians showing up, getting photos done, having these conversations uh, with these public schools. Well, where were you before? Mm. Where were you before? Yeah. You know, you've had multiple governments that have been uh, in Parliament running the country and there were still these issues then. Where were you then? Mm. And so um, for me personally, um, you know, it's just heartbreaking to see, again, uh, this type of turmoil within our community. And everybody here will be feeling the pinch. Mm. Um, and it's how we navigate through this, um, what I like to call, um, shitstorm. <laughs> it's how, how do we navigate through this? Because all the way up through to the election, you can see it on TV as well, yeah. um, it's, it's starting to design a certain narrative mm. around uh, the attachment of the Green School. But I remember the opening. Yeah, there were plenty of politicians there at the opening from multiple parties. Yeah. Yeah, and from uh, local government and from the wider community. Uh, like, it's easier to forget that. And when your stance is on that green school, wherever you're for or against it, there is not going to be a winner in here unless the government is willing to acknowledge their mistakes and correct it. But our public school sector needs help. Yep. And if anything, what they've done is that they've ignited yet um, another flame for our community to rally together. And so um, if there's any opportunity from there is when our community mobilises and focuses on creating change and have their voices loud and clear that that wasn't just, yep, take it to Wellington, take it to government, show them. But I want to touch on quickly as well, like kind of separate but related, because one of the big things that I have been engaging with people when it, when this tucky came up um, is the idea, because like, like you said, a lot of us were at the opening, I was, I went on the hikoi of the whenua and the introductory days and tried to get involved as much as I could as a school to learn about it, because in theory it sounded amazing to me. Um, and I wanted to see if the practical application, or, and also, bro, just to see if they were full of shit or not, because I don't, I don't know um, Rachel and Michael that well. Um, so I went to get to know them and, and try and see what was going on and engage the authenticity on the school. The one thing that a lot of people have been saying is that um, that it's it's like a the the way that they do their teaching. Because my my argument, bro, is that like, look. They are reconnecting Tamariki with the Fenua, with you know traditional stuff that, and as Indigenous people with the world over, we know the connection between Fenua and man or people, I should say, um, the waterways, the Kaitiakitanga. That, that's what I'm looking for. That word, the Kaitiakitanga of of the Fenua, is something that I feel they really promote and they are looking to reestablish. So then, this this idea of cultural appropriation comes up where some are saying that schools such as the Green School, that's what they are. They're taking Indigenous teachings and, and profiting or, or appropriating that. I personally, bro, battle so much with cultural appropriation. Like, I, I don't know what is 
Like, obviously, I know the polars. Like, I know fucking blackface and shit is no good. Mm. I understand that. But, like, where do you draw the line in terms of, you know, and once again, I'm just using the, the Green School example as a segue here. I'm not asking you to speak on behalf of the Green School or relate your answer to the Green School. I, I want to ask you about cultural appropriation as an ideal as a whole. Where do you draw the line between it being cultural appropriation but or people just just giving it a go. So for example, if we use te reo, when is when is when is an individual culturally appropriating te reo or when are they making how do you distinguish that and then making a genuine effort at trying to learn te reo? They might be butchering it and they might be horrible and getting stuff wrong. How like how do you differentiate that? Are you offended? Are you offended by um, the willingness of um, members of our community who are actually open enough to have the courage to learn our native language, mm. to help enhance the mana of our, of our language, therefore enhance the mana of our culture, our tikanga, our way of life? So then if people are offended, are you saying offended by the intent or the result? Or well, well, you know, cultural appropriation. So if we look at that, if we look at that space in terms of the, I'm, I'm just trying to get your, gain your understanding mm. uh, of what it is. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, with regards to the green school, mm. because um, you know they went to local hapu mm. right from the beginning, and it was a learning phase for them. But they needed to um, prove themselves, and they were cohesively and collectively, not just with the local hapu of Oakura, but um, iwi as well. And they learned and they educated themselves, but they were always seeking um, to find better understanding as part of their cultural response and approach uh, for their school. Mm. So for me... There's enough evidence there to suggest that well, it's I not... I thought that was a wonderful way to start a relationship yep. because historically you just did it. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. So by doing right, by actually seeking the support um, to be educated mm. in this realm, which is unfamiliar uh, to the parents, and then still willing to continue to grow that relationship. I've been in many meetings where um, we got a basis of understanding of the concept um, and a more holistic approach to education as opposed to this traditional factory um, stock standard education system where personally I feel is outdated. Mm. So this concept and designs is not new to Māori. It's not. But this design uh, to try and educate our tamariki in a different way um, you know, it's the first that I know of, um, of this particular green school concept. Um, not kura kaupapa and, and that, but of this particular concept that is different. And so um, for me, it's like through their education and through their approach to towards educating uh, our kids um, is almost 
really different towards our standard education process. But in terms of that cultural appropriation and me uh, working like through navigating through Minihui, um, their approach I thought was a really good approach towards involving mana whenua, tangata whenua, hapuenini. So let's, let's balance the argument up. And it's about fairness. You know, one of the, one of the uh, conversations going around is that uh, about participation. Well, under under the, the Queen's protection is that we will have the same rights as uh, the European settlers. We'll be able to participate equally. That did not happen. Mm. That did not happen at all, and there are laws, laws designed to eradicate our very way of life. It was implemented then. What are some of those? Oh, the Tohunga Suppression Act. Yeah, so what's that? Well, it, well, it's practising our way of life. Mm. So that was illegal to do that. And these examples, when we talk about our grandparents, our parents being beaten for speaking their own language, then when they become adults, why would you teach your children that? when they suffered that trauma. Uh, there's a raft of land laws, uh, the New Zealand Settlements Act, where if you were to disagree with the Crown... Just take your land. Take your land, just by disagreeing with them. You know... Party up there, right? People don't even realise why the reason why there were uh, Māori seats in Parliament, the intention behind it, it was so they could have representation as partners, representation. But what happened is that during the time where uh, European settlers started to grow, so did their seats in Parliament, but not our seats. And here's the thing, Māori weren't allowed to vote on the general electoral roll for almost 80 years, three generations. They weren't allowed by law. And then if you were... Um, if you were Māori and you had land, you couldn't stand for council. It was their rule. And then they developed the Public Works Act. Mm, this, oh, this that masterpiece. Fuck. <laughs> that masterpiece. So for those that are listening that Yeah, don't the know. Public Works Act is where they, they had every right to take land for, for public projects and all that sort of stuff. But what they did, they used it as a tool to confiscate land. And just strip away thousands of acres of land, mm. Māori land. And then we are still dealing with the remnants of that today. So under, under um, what grounds has it ever been equal? Has there ever been equity? If we are all one people, yeah, how did that work out for Māori? Mm. So there's this narrative around there where we are being treated and spoiled where people just don't know the history. Well, that's the thing, right? It's like you guys, like what I hear is like even those I mentioned before, I'm getting trolled in those fake profiles. Some of the shit they've been saying to me, for example, is um, you guys, I'm trying to think of the wording, you guys like, like you're saying, you, you're getting all this stuff from say this point in time, but they want to completely forget about what happened before that point of time? 
Yep. And it's like, how can you be so dismissive of some something that was that's so blatant? Oh, because it was it's easy for them to to dismiss it because it didn't affect them. And I've also grown to know, bro, that there's a lot of non-Māori out there who kind of refuse to acknowledge that a lot of what they've achieved and what their tupuna achieved in life is probably due to a lot of these advantages. Yeah, but, the, you know, like the comments about, well, you know, we bought you houses, we bought you roads <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. I've talked to you I, about that before yeah, in our I, personal I, I mean, I, li- I, like their, I like their argument because I like their, their thinking process behind it. Well, what'd you build it on? Mm. Or what'd you build those roads on? It's a basically the economy, right? Nothing, you can't have nothing without land. Can't have nothing without land. And there's only a finite amount of land. That land is so precious. And like, I get it. I've, I've, I've heard all the arguments, 42 years I've heard every <laughs> argument, and it's repetitive, it's the same cycle, it's the same cycle, it's that same conditioning, that's how they try and, um, that's how they try and win the argument, but there's evidence there, evidence, facts that are there, and everybody that tried to discredit that there were others before Māori, oh I've heard that one, that, um, you know, that what we brought here to advance, it's, I've heard it all before, it's what keeps them safe. Mm. But it's the same narrative that when you compare it to what um, Crown historians have collected, when you compare it to uh, Māori historians, when you compare it to the research that uh, the government have done, there is alignment in the trustees of settlements to acknowledge the atrocities of what the Crown have done. And to do better, is to learn from them to do better uh, for our for the next generation, and I can only be a voice of uh, reason. But if you think you know more than me in this space, educate me. Because and if not, let me educate you. Well, <laughs> let me talk from a place of understanding. Yeah, because my views are going to be strongly opposed from others. That's cool. But I'm always willing to have a cordial, not online, not via email, but I'm always willing to have a cordial kānohi ki te kānohi, face to face. And you've done that, right? Like you've had Absolutely. people, you've had people that you've met up with because they want to know, well, they, to be honest, probably their intention is to just blast you, but you've met up with them and then you guys have come away, come away amicable. amicable, right? Yeah, amicable. Uh, but we could, we could still have disagreements. Yeah, yeah. But amicable but, and respectful. Oh, respectful. Yeah, I'm happy to have those conversations. Um, I'm happy to have those ones who have pole opposite views. And, you know, in a time where social media removes mm. debate from discussion mm. because it gets personal very quickly, it's, a, it's an art to debate, to try and influence. And it's trying to, it's trying to be, like, I've seen it, all throughout the social media. And for me, I'd rather, if I can learn from the discussion that I'm having, man, I welcome it. Because it gives me a, a deeper insight to their opinion and what brought them around this opinion. And I hopefully, I can, from a place of understanding, can help educate them. But if we walk away, but we enjoyed the conversation, and I've had, I've had heaps, bro. I've had plenty of... Um, conversations with people who either didn't understand, didn't agree, um, but what I loved is that 
we actually had a good corridor about it, which I think, uh, and one of the key things is that what they say to me is, I wish more people could have these types of corridor. Oh, bro, 100%. That's why I started this whole thing, with yeah. the podcast, is because I have a lot of conversations, you know, like a lot of the one-way, one-on-one conversations we have, yeah. or even with some of the bros present, we were like, I know, I come away like, fuck, man, so many people needed to be in that room just then. So many people need to have have to hear that conversation or have and that conversation. I don't want to like I don't want to filter these sort of podcasts, bro. Mm. I, I don't want to filter because of my position within the community, because of um, my position within my fano. It's just honest cordial. Yeah. You know, it, when you filter stuff to the point where you're so worried about reactions because you're just having an open cordial, um, it prevents you from being authentic. Mm. It prevents you from allowing people to see the person behind the persona. And there are people who have a certain persona, but in order for us to have a deeper connection with one another, let's, let's again, let's push through and see the humanity in that person, in that person. So when I look at the likes of those who have stood for council, there's a lot of them who are fathers, mothers, you know, probably grandparents. Mm. That's the humanity in that person. They stood to hopefully make a difference. And what I hope in the next three years is that we have more community champions out there who'd stand in the next election um, because I think our community deserve it. They deserve to have um, a diverse range of people on that council um, to make some tough discussions and decisions. So, yeah, I, I love it, bro. I love it. And anyone out there listening who might be dead set against anything and everything that I talk about, I love to have a cordial, mm. a cup and a cordial. It's just, it's, there's something personable by removing all the, all these, um, all these preventative um, kind of walls that can really um, hinder any progress? Well, the big thing, bro, like for anyone that's studied any sort of communications or sales or whatever, the, the one, of, one of the 101s that we've taught is that like it's 90% body or 72% body language, you know, 20% your words and 8% your, so like it's. That's some great myth. Hips. Yeah, yes. Yep. <laughs> so, Nailed me. You nailed yeah. me. No, but what I'm saying is that we're not getting those, we're not getting that tone of voice. We're not getting those words. We're just, um, so we're only getting the, the words, not the tone of voice or not the body language, a lot with the online stuff. Yeah. When people are talking on the phone, you don't get that body language. But the body language is 72% of how people communicate. So we're automatically throwing out the door a massive part of me actually getting my point across to you. And that can only happen when I sit down in front of you or even if we Zoom or something like that in this day and age. Yeah. You can still get that. But that's not happening, right? People are just... Because yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, reactions are often emotionally driven. Mm. And whether you're for or against anything, it's normally the, the emotions that um, leads the discussion. And then for me, I like to sift through the emotion to try and get to the heart of the content. 
um, because I know for myself I've always led with my heart and mm. that gets me in trouble sometimes. What I try and do is try and bring about a balance, not even an argument, just balanced information um, to, to, it may not even be to justify, but for myself is to find better understanding of the pros and cons, to hopefully have a, a balanced view or opinion. And you know, there's some topics that are happening right now that it's emotionally driven. The Māori world was emotionally driven. Yep. The Yarrow Stadium was emotionally driven. Uh, me being away from my whānau for three days was emotionally driven. To do better. And that's the thing, right? Like when we talk about everything we've spoken about in regards to being challenged on your own way of thinking, your actions, like we should be relishing those challenges as an opportunity to be better, right? But people yeah. run away from those challenges or avoid them for for whatever reason. Well, I know I'm not saying it's easy. Like you no, and I are adverse to yeah, it. Like we're used to it. We have those personalities. Most I'm most of the reasons is because of the consequences. Mm. Sometimes those consequences are, are a tough pill to swallow. Are a tough pill to swallow. So get it right. Yep. Like get it right. And if we relate, they're being challenged in terms of the you know, treaty acknowledgements and Māori Ward stuff that we spoke to, yeah. a lot of those, the the thing there is, oh shit, I was wrong, right? There's a little bit of ego attached to when it. When you look at former Prime Minister Jim Bolger. Yeah, fuck. Born in Pungarihu, didn't even know about Pariaka. And then when he got to do his own research and his own studies, he got to change his view. And so he's now a passionate advocate for, for Māori issues. It's amazing. Mm. It, it's it's beautiful. So it's fine that most people convert, um, for lack of a better term, or when they when they wake up or however you want to word it, they turn out to they become educated. They become your biggest advocate, right? Yeah, because they they now see the reason why. Ah, oh, they're always moaning. Oh, they're always wanting this. They're always wanting that. But then they educate themselves because that's how you that's how you find. Um, Better ways yep. is by educating yourself. Um, is for for them, their narrative started to shift from the I suppose historic conditioning, yep. uh, which allows them to think broader and to make better decisions uh, for the future. For me, it always seems to be like kind of like a, a, a almost like a principle of change where people get to a point where they're like, okay. This is a point of no return. I know what I know now. Now, do I pretend I don't? Or do I take some action? So like, I guess, for example, was when I spoke to Anaru, Anaru was episode five, I think it was, for the podcast. And he, like, he's, like, remembers learning and finding out all the stuff about the atrocities that happened to Tangata Whenua. And he was like, fuck. And, like, he actually, he sat in his office, like, okay, what am I going to do now that I know this? Everyone must go through that, right? Yeah, yeah. E- even even myself. Yeah. Like I feel like I feel like I am an educator, but a lot of that's through my own life experiences, what I lived through, what I've observed, what I've seen, um, person. And you can you can uh, there's two ways to look at history. You can either use it via textbooks or educate yourself on um, you know, uh, Papa Google. Yeah. And the other way is what you've lived through. Mm. And man, it was tough being a child, living through that political space and navigating through that. 
but now that I've, I'm a father myself, it, it's, it's incredibly humbling yeah. to know what I know, and my approach is to try and bring about understanding. That's all. Isn't it ironic, bro, that some of the biggest challenges we face in life turn out to be our biggest asset as people? Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think with, with social media, you can lose the art of communicating to one another. Just human to human. I think you can be so strong online that you kind of miss the opportunity to connect. And, you know, that connection, it's deeper. And I think if more people, if more people can connect more in person um, at a safe distance, kia COVID. Um, (laughs) But you find more in common. So here's what I love to do. Here's one of the D-man tips of the day when I'm having a conversation with people who have a polar opposite view than me. I like to ask questions about themselves, their upbringing. Have they got any family? Um, you know, brothers or sisters, siblings. Um, do they have children? That's the human-to-human connection. Regardless of our political affiliation or political views, when you break it down, you know, that could be a mother, a father, you could have a couple of children, some grandchildren, and just because their thinking is different, um, I want to see the humanity in them. And what I've appreciated over the tough conversations that I've had in the nine months being elected is that I, I saw their humanity regardless of their position. I got to see their humanity. And even if we disagree, have polar opposite disagreements, what I love is that we walk away knowing that all they want is what's best for their kids. Does that humanity make them easier, harder, or has no bearing on dealing with them? No, it has no bearing. Okay. Because it's relatable. So we can have strong political views against each other. Mm. But if I know that you're a father or a mother, my wife's a mother. Then I'll look at um, trying to dive deep and and just learning a bit more about them. I won't let my ignorance get in the way of learning about. Them. Oh, do you do any work like with community work? You know, because yeah, you, yeah. you can pick things up, and then you might find they've been um, working for a charity for twenty years volunteering, and then you're like, oh, what, what inspired you to do that? And you find out, well, you know, it could be the the they had a family member. Um, Involved with the organisation or received help from... Received help and all that sort of stuff. Humanity. Then there's connection. And so we've got a polar opposite view here, but we can connect other ways. And then you leave feeling... I remember I had this this one online debate with um, one, one guy, and it was an awesome debate. And my last, my last reply to him was like, you know what I love? Is that I learned something today. And I want to thank you for that. Completely threw him off. Because I've never had that type of reply. I said, well, you educated me. And it was awesome. And then he, we started uh, messaging each other privately. and had a good cordial. And it didn't have anything to do with the topic. It pretty much had things to do with us as family men. Mm. Again, you know, politics is designed to divide. Yeah. 
that's probably why I was so reluctant to stand. Cause, ah. Take us through that process. How did that come about? How did you get it past the missus, all that? Nah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Are you putting me on the spot? Uh, but it was a process. Uh, and it's fair to say that I was reluctant at the start to stand. Mm. Um, but I was stuck in my own. As am I reluctant to do it? We've had conversations. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so, boy, did we? Yeah, yeah. yeah so, I, gave you, I think I gave you the whole of a growly oh, next all, all the time. Um, but so my, my change in my whakaro was in order for me to uh, be like, okay, I'm going to stand was, what, what could I learn in this process? How could I develop myself to be better? So if I do get elected, how much more will I grow and develop through this process? To then, if I decide to no longer run uh, for council, how much more can I give back to my community? That was it. It was as simple as that. It just took me ages to find that thought process because I knew it was me holding myself back. And then once I, I that messaging resonated with me, not to convince my wife, I just knew that I needed her support in order for me to stand. Mm. But we were going through a lot of shit, bro. Oh, fuck, man. We were like, going I through don't know what you want. You share what you want, but, I mean, being, being mates, yeah. I, I know what the stuff that you were dealing with. Yeah, so we, I mean, it, it was, it was, during that time was the toughest time in our lives personally. Mm. Um, you know, it was the toughest two years and lead up to that. And... You know, we, I've shared my story on when I've done guest speaking engagements, but the truth of the matter was, you know, my wife went and her family, her sisters went through, you know, just hell. And overall, what happened is, um, you know, I was, I was training to do this Ironman to raise this money for an amazing charity, The Little Fighters. And during that process, um, my wife lost her boss. Um, Kevin, Kevin Foley and he was an amazing mentor she considered him a second dad and then three months after that um, her dad got diagnosed with motor neuron and that was tough it was tough for her because those two they were joint at the hip they did everything together they did sports together um, he was he was, her, those two were just you know they did all the sports events together and during that time, I was training to raise that money, um, and I stopped. I stopped training. I stopped raising that money. I needed to focus on my family because a couple of weeks later, um, my wife uh, went through obviously depression and anxiety, um, and it was it was just this roller coaster ride of emotions. And I don't share this lightly. I just want to give people just reality. Mm. Reality, the reality of life. Um, and so we focused on us as a family. And then I remember, I remember um, we got ourselves right, we were in a good space, and then I was like, oh, I better get stuck back into training. I got stuck back into training, and I think I had five weeks before um, a quarter iron moulding. And then my family were going up to Napier. We went there, and at the same time, I was about to start a new career. Um, and then we were up there. I went to do the swim in the Kōrāia Māori about 
couple of hundred metres into the swim, there was a massive cluster, and I went to try and outswim, you know, like this humpback whale trying to outswim all these lean athletes, and I went down on the back of um, another swimmer, it was like a tin of sardines at this buoy, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah dislocated my shoulder. I ended up completing the race, um, and then we went straight to the hospital. <laughs> And I was feeling sorry for myself because we were four months outside the Ironman and I was feeling sorry for myself. Two years of hard work and now I can't do it and all that. I couldn't train. I knew what it takes to recover from a dislocated shoulder. And then, so on Sunday, we got we were travelling home. I think we were about an hour into the drive. Me, high on antibiotics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had to say antibiotics. But I was in my sling and we got a call from uh, my wife's sister. And she told us that um, her dad had passed away. Um, so from his diagnosis of motor neuron disease to um, his passing was seven months. And we had to pull over because, you know, we had my two boys in the back. We were bawling our eyes out. Uh, her and I, we had to bawl our eyes out. And here's me again, high on antibiotics. I'm in a sling, looking at my wife, who's pulling her eyes out, and then I was like, do you want me to drive? <laughs> she gave me the look. I think all, all, all husbands know that look. We collected ourselves, and then we drove right home. We drove right home, uh, got home to our family. There were more tears shed. And then, um, yeah, the very next day, I was supposed to fly to Auckland. Um, to start my new new career um, as a business development manager for Latitude Financial Services. I was, in, I was not in the right headspace, bro. I was not in the right headspace, but I went up there and uh, my boss, um, amazing, awesome fella, uh, sent me back home pretty much, spend the week with my whanau and then we'll start again. Um, and that was the beginning of a very tumultuous time, bro, because a month later, um, her grandmother passed away. Then a couple of months later, um, I think a couple of weeks before I was doing the, the Ironman, um, her uncle passed away. And then here we are in this new phase. I attempted to do the Ironman. Um, I didn't make it. And then so I was ready to, ready to move on. We achieved what we did. We created history by raising that money for the Little Fighters Trust. In one of How much money did you raise? I would have been over 100000 overall. Um, but, you know, I've got to do a big shout-out to BNI and their community, their business community, because during all of this navigating through all this heartache and all that sort of stuff, I was really tired. I, I, was, I was shattered. I wasn't going to give up. But all these public speaking engagements, all this like, grassroots raising the money, uh, the volunteers from the little fighters were amazing. We got up to about 60 grand. And I was just sharing my story. They asked me to come back and I shared it at a breakfast. And they were like, we're going to help. We're going to put on an auction for you. We just want you to be the guest of honour. And we'll put this auction for it. about 20k off. And... Oh, I was so shattered. It was weird too on that night because I wasn't the MC. I wasn't the entertainment. 
And you were a guest. Sit down, have a drink, eat, and just enjoy yourself, okay? Yeah, and, and I wasn't like, so I didn't, I didn't have that entertaining persona. I was just me. Yeah. And that was, that was. You weren't the D-man, you were Dinny. Yeah, I was Dinny, and I felt quite vulnerable, just being me. Mm. Um, but that night we raised $54,500. That night. Oh, oh, Sorry, I'm only cracking up, bro, because I know a certain someone who donated a rugby jersey, they're like, ah, I could have got that. <laughs> nah. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Kia ora, Thank you, my <laughs> But that night, uh, there was a dream that the little fighters had, and we were able to fulfil that dream. Because how long did you work with them for an official capacity like, like that and raising that oh, job? Oh, I know you've always done mahi with them for a long time. Yeah, I've said to them that I'll, I'll, I'm happy to be a lifetime ambassador yep. for them. Now, that was the, oh, I'm just happy to help them, but I want to... So let's plug them, bro. What do they do? What so do they do? Um, the Little Fighters Trust, they help families who have a family member um, that suffer a terminal illness. And what they found, um, Rachel and Darren West... You know, an unbelievable couple who've gone through shit in their life. Um, and Rachel spent close to two years up at the Ronald McDonald House in Auckland um, because their son was diagnosed with leukaemia. Mm. And on their son's passing, you know, you had a choice, you could have a choice in life, whether you wallow in sorrow or can you do something in honour. And they found a gap. Families who have children with a terminal illness, there are gaps within a health system that prevent any assistance. And they wanted to fill that gap by helping. Um, and when they approached me, a friend of mine approached me to be um, an ambassador. I was like, well, what does that mean? They were like, oh, you know, you just gonna, can help advocate for us. And I said, well, I just don't want a title. I actually want to make a difference. And that's how we got onto what their biggest dream was. So how did you, yeah, how did you arrive at that figure? The, 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 they had it all worked out? Yes, they had it all worked out. Well, they'd been trying to do it for years. Mm. They just couldn't get it off the ground. And this fellow goes, <laughs> <laughs> this fellow goes, sweet, I'll do it. And I know exactly how I'm going to do it. They were like, what, oh, so you're going to do like 10 grand for us? Or? No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I'll, I'll fundraise a lot and I'll do the craziest thing that I've never ever thought I'd ever wanted to do in my life and that's to train to do an Ironman. And they looked at me as if I wasn't all there. But you imagine when I got home to talk to Son about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, hey, hey, um, this charity came up to me and they and I said, I'm going to raise them $80,000. And Sonia was like, oh, yes. I said, yeah, and I, I told them what I was going to do to do it. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm going to do an Ironman. No shit, Sonia looked at me and she absolutely pissed herself laughing. <laughs> she was laughing that loud because it was just a ridiculous idea. I was pissing myself laughing. I just was Well, I can up. imagine the two of just you just the ridiculousness the... of it all. Well, that's what laughter is, bro. Hey, like yeah. fundamentally, bro, laughter <laughs> is a nervous reaction. Yeah. Laughter is you going, holy crap. Because at that stage, bro, I was 140 kgs. I just recovered from a nine-month ordeal. I had a body infection that I recovered from. Fuck, that's right. Yep. Um, I, you know, and, and 
I couldn't run more than 100 metres without heaving. I, um, I hadn't ridden a bike in 30 years. I hadn't jumped in the pool for over 20 years. And, that, and I'd never run more than 5K in my whole life. So that was my starting point. Mm. And that's where I was when I said, hey, I'm going to do an Ironman. So you knew how ridiculous it was. Mm. Well, on January the 1st, 2017, when I started, that's how I started. And in that first 12 months, bro, because I wasn't thinking about myself, I was thinking about these children. I was thinking about one of, what if one of my children got diagnosed with that? Mm. What are you willing to do? And that was the drive all I needed. And it was hard, bro. There were many times I wanted to give up. I was going to say, let's unpack a couple of things there, bro. One, why such big, hairy-ass goals? Because it's impossible. That's it. But don't tell me I can't do it. <laughs> don't tell me I can't do it. But that was a life education, that journey, bro. It changed me for the better. Mm. It broadened my, my horizons on what's possible. And what it also broadened my horizons on is that in life, there are people in your life that will tell you that you can't. They'll, they'll uh, force their own limitations on you. I've always been a fighter. I've always been, all right, I'm going to plant my feet. Uh, not to prove them wrong, to prove me right, that I can. And so I did it. And in that 12 months, bro, I did three of the Taranaki Tour um, triathlons, and that whānau was amazing. Then I built up to my very first half marathon. I did it with a, an awesome friend, Dwayne Shemansky, and then I did a quarter iron Māori, and then I did three half Ironmen, in three months, in my first twelve, hearing about this. In my first twelve months, and then my body fell apart. <laughs> what I didn't know is that you don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I learned a lot. I learned in my second half Ironman, bro. It was in Tauranga, awesome setup, hot as. I was seven k from home, and I blew one of my calf muscles, <laughs> and then I was limping. I think about I was 6k from home and I blew the other one. Oh, so I had to waddle. I had to waddle to the finish line. But you finished. I was 100 metres out and, you know, everybody's cheering. And I went to take off and I just had to hobble all over. Yeah. But it was so gratifying because of all the hard work that went in. And then when you complete it, you're like, what else can I do? Mm. And that was the that's point. what I was saying before at the very start. Like it's, it's fucking addictive, eh? Yeah, but you've got to, you've got to have the vision. Yeah, you've got to have the vision. So I built up like when I started my business, Demand Entertainment. You know, I didn't know whether or not um, I was going to be successful. I was just quite passionate of entertaining. But then we got into the um, Taranaki Chamber of Commerce Business Excellence Awards. I knew the work that went into to actually put my business forward up, and then we did well. We did well, we got third in the, um, I think it was in the marketing category. Uh, we got a highly commended in the visitor award. We, we came second to WIT. Um, and then we were best new business. Taranaki. And then we were one of four uh, businesses up for the overall Supreme Award. Tell me about what that taught you. The business, starting the business, running the business, and even I guess a little bit of the origin oh, story about how that came about. Yeah, yeah, probably uh, what it, taught me was um, pay more attention at school. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, kids. Yeah, there you go, kids. Education is key. It, it just taught me um, heaps of life skills, bro. 
doing the business. It taught me, uh, it, it definitely challenged me. Um, I think for, for the first close to two years of my business, um, it was all about the hustle. So I was working, no lies, I was working 16, 20 hour days for the first two years. I believe it because I was there. <laughs> Unsustainable. And that's how when my health started to deteriorate, and uh, when my health started to deteriorate, I needed to, I needed to have a look. Mm. I needed to change. And then I just applied the same kind of fundamentals to this journey to raise this money, hard work, and then we succeeded. And then I had to apply the same fundamentals um, to um, this new career opportunity, and just hard work. And then the same when deciding to stand for council, I just applied the same fundamentals, hard work. So let's unpack some of those fundamentals. What's some of the, the key things that you've, you, you carry and you cross across all these things that you do? Yeah, I think, you know, belief comes from certainty. And certainty comes from the repetition of um, developing habits to change, I don't know, historic limitations. So I needed to assess, which was... Um, my health is shit, so I needed to change my health. So one of the fundamental principles I knew I had was that I had really strong work ethic. I could just work to the bone. And so that's what I did. I just worked my ass off to start changing my um, health. And as my health started to change for the better, then it was, a, you know, te whare tapafa, yeah, the four pillars. Mm -hmm. So when I look at the four pillars, um, te whare tapafa, it's this, for those who don't know, look it up, te whare tapafa provides... It's a game changer. This, yeah, it provides these four pillars to your overall health and well-being. Uh, one of the pillars is tinana, so you, your physical health. Uh, one is hinengaru, your, um, I suppose, emotional, psychological uh, health. The other one is whānau, your, your family's well-being. And the other one is wider one, spiritual health and well-being. So I looked at this, but for me, it shows these pillars, but it doesn't really show how to activate these pillars. Mm. Uh, it might give you some examples, but how do you activate it? So what I did through my own experience is what pillars to activate first, and then how does that flow onto the other pillars? So the first pillar I activated was tinana. So I got my physical health right. And what happened when I got my physical health right? It um, built my hinenga, my emotional and psychological well-being. And then when my physical well-being was good, my um, emotional well-being was good, what effect did that have on my, fa uh, my whānau? So I became a better husband, better father, better friend, better son. And then when all three pillars were rock solid, what did that do to my wairua? And what I also, and this is just my personal views, everybody yeah, yeah. will have different interpretations. I've gotten into a weird space where I'm teaching it to people now. Yeah, so wairua for me is the key. Wairua is the key. And over the past couple of years of navigating through um, an intense amount of grief, wairua can be the most um, powerful and the strongest out of those four pillars and the most vulnerable and fragile. So it, that wider one, if your wider was strong, all three are strong, and the wider was the glue.
So we went through um, practically two years of grief. You know, Sonia lost four whānau members, two of them being her parents. And um, our wider world was fractured. It was fragile. And it had an effect on all the other pillars. Now we're just navigated through that. So people don't know during that campaign of going on to the New Plymouth District Council, halfway through that campaign, um, my mother-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer. She passed away during that campaign. And I remember talking to her. I was talking to um, Sonia's mum. I was like, oh, mum, I need to get my priorities right. My priorities should be with my family, not doing this. And I almost pulled out. almost pulled out of the, the campaigning. You know, this was three days before she passed away. And she told me, um, you were born for this. Don't stop. And it, yeah. <coughs> I still remember the impact that, um, that I felt from hearing those words from, uh, from my mother-in-law. Mm. Um, and so being in this space now, I'll do my absolute best um, to honour her memory uh, while, I'm, while I'm in council uh, because I should have... Um, no, I wanted to give up. I wanted to give up and be uh, with my family instead of campaigning. And that was a tough, that was almost 12 months of campaigning. Um, but she gave me the push to carry on. And that was, that was before she went into a sleep and then before she passed away. So having the responsibility of being a counsellor, I take dead seriously. This ain't a game for me. And I'll do whatever I can to the best of my ability um, while being a counsellor um, to, do, to do my absolute best for the community. And at the end of the day, bro, that's all I could ever ask for of myself. Um, but that's what I'll deliver. So that it, it, it was, it was tough. Since we've circled back to the council stuff, bro, before I let you rock and roll, I want to ask, like, with the, the board being approved... What does that mean now? So there's a chance for, for it to be established for the next triennium, which is, I think, 2022, leading up to the next elections. But obviously, um, you've got Councillor Murray Chong and Kevin Moretti who are putting forward a petition to form a referendum. Um, so Kevin Moretti's not a councillor though, right? No. Who, who is he? Uh, just a member of the community. Okay. okay. Um, and so... The, the referendum is so our community at large can have um, their say on whether or not to establish one. He's part of Hobson Pledge, I was trying to think how I knew that. Yep, yep. yep. Okay. So, you know, I, I focus on the intention behind um, this was done by central government in 2002. And it's funny when you've got politicians... Who Sorry, are, what was done? What was done by government? Uh, to, to have this... Ref, uh, the, yep. yep, okay, yep. sorry. So to, to enable the, the petition to take place? Or enable this particular, I suppose, um, part this of, yeah, to establish a Māori ward. Yeah. That all councils could have that ability. 
Oh, so that was only bought in in 2002? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I thought that was something that Well, the funny thing pregnant. is, when it was put in, my father and I, we were at the, the council and at that, that time, and my father asked the deputy, the deputy mayor at the time, um, hey, what about establishing the Māori ward? And at that time, he was like, oh, I don't think the timing's right. Well, here we are 18 years later, having the same argument. With? <laughs> well, the, the thing is, um, you know, however you stand in this, and, you know, Murray and I, we've had several conversations with it. Mm. What Do it, you guys talk privately like this, like one-on-one? Or you, Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. I, think I was just interested to know, bro, because I, I reckon a lot of people would assume that you guys just don't see each other, but I know that's probably not the case because I don't super know him, yep. but I, I've engaged with him, and I know he's not afraid to have some conversations, and I know you're not, so I just wondered how that worked well, out of the public eye. Yeah, yeah, well, the thing is, bro, once I got elected, it was no longer about me. I'm not going to let my own uh, personal views, um, because it hinders my ability to do right by the community. Mm. And I can't speak on behalf of Murray, but um, you know, it was intentional, my desire to build bridges with everyone, including Murray. Mm -hmm. And even though with our past we had very strong views, um, but my intent is to build bridges so that the community can benefit. And that that was, so it, it was, easy for me to have conversations and then there are things that he and I agree on in terms of um, certain issues and around um, prudency and and spending and all that sort of stuff and there are things that we disagree on but ultimately we know where each other stands in this space in this space like really disagree on stuff right like in terms of a council it's important to have people at polar opposite ends of the yeah because it broadens the discussion it broadens the discussion. And it creates an opportunity for education. Yeah, but I won't, I won't um, you know, convince me otherwise that what you're going to do will benefit the community. And in the same token, I better do the same. Yep. You know, but to, to have everybody agreeing on everything, not healthy. It's not healthy for, for democracy um, because then someone could have a certain narrative and then it just, you know, just doesn't work that way because then you're following, um, when you're following a certain narrative and you're just kind of um, being part of the team. I'm a very, I'm a, one, I'm an independent uh, voter. Uh, two, I, I would love to hear more information of your argument, but convince me. And then if it's a topic that you know nothing about or very little about, and I do, <laughs> it provides me the opportunity to educate whether they digest it or not is a different story. Yeah, that's on there, man. But I also know he has a particular skill set that um, I know could enhance and broaden my awareness. You know, being a bit, he's been a business owner for over 20 years. Uh, he's been a mortgage broker. Um, he considers himself... Um, quite astute when it comes to uh, prudency and all that sort of stuff. Um, and for me, if it, if it allows me the opportunity to learn um, a different way of thinking to, to hone my skills, and that goes for everyone else, I can see myself um, learning from all councillors 
the, the older councillors and the recently new ones because it only benefits my, my viewpoint. It only broadens it to, to allow me to make better decisions. And so, yeah, I mean, what it will do, if they get the petition, goes out to referenda and the public speaks on it like they did six years ago, it, to me it only highlights, again, um, how racist the, the actual law is. So here, here's the thing that I'll, I want to share, bro. Central government implemented this. Implemented Local, what? The, the, to Award? establish a Māori yep, right? Okay. Local government have to deal with it. Including the aftermath, including the division, local government. So if we want to change this, we've got to lobby, or we've got a petition to central government to yeah. change it. So, you know, it's it's that was a tough decision on everyone. But we mean got to establish the ward? Oh, to just make a decision. Yeah. You know, you got to make a decision. The thing is, is that we've got to deal with the consequences. Hmm. Not central government, yep. we do. So you had um, uh, Winston Peters come up here and he, he shared his views. Boy, you know, was he rallying his base? But here's the thing. When he pisses off, who has to deal with it? We do. This community. This community has to deal with that. Mm -hmm. Where he just moves on. And so the remnants and the after effects of any court at all um, that he does, cool. But he doesn't have to deal with it. We do, and so we're dealing with it. And whatever the outcome is, come February, we'll have a better understanding. Um, but, you know, it only fuels me because I know that this is a step forward. It's not a step back. Are people, so if people, I'm trying to think how to say this. The Māori ward, if you are not in favour of the Māori ward, does that make you racist, do you think? Oh, I don't think so. Mm. I think what, what it does is just, one, are you willing to be open enough to understand? Or are you just going to be close-minded off? And not, you don't want, because oh, it's separatism, um, it, it, it's, you know, you're being favoured. So it's an educational piece. Mm. Oh, well, it's, a, it's an opportunity to educate. And what we found is those who have decided to educate themselves see this as an opportunity, a positive opportunity. Those who refuse to, cool. That's their, that's their views, that's their right, cool. But here's what's going to happen, is that the next generation, they're learning, they're educating themselves, and they're challenging their parents. That's confronting. Yeah. And... Um, all I can see myself being is just a, a, a voice um, and hopefully a partner to bring about better understanding. But at the end of the day, everybody can make up their own mind um, and how they choose to share their views. Um, but I know that, that I feel 100% that the council made the right decision. The outcome is still to come. Even to to not go to consultation in the first place, you're you're comfortable that yeah, absolutely yep, one hundred percent. Because uh, if we were to consult, and and you know people don't realise how challenging that was just to navigate through that, and so um, what do you mean what part? 
oh, just uh, just how this process came up, what we had to deal with, the recommendation that was on offer, and the options that were also available. You know, there's a lot of historic historic fear that came from what happened six years ago yep. and all that sort of stuff. And so just trying to navigate through that space. I mean, I mean, I was there, bro, for some of those hui, and yep. obviously that's just a very small part of what actually is going on. Yep. And I am in whole... I am under no illusion that that is just the public-facing part. I know that conversations happen behind closed doors. I'm not a child. I know that that goes down. And even I could visibly see and sense that kind of bit of fear from the small portion that I was getting a seat to. I yeah. could see that people were worried about their job. Is it going to cost? Or not job, but their their oh, uh, their role. Is it going to cost them? Like what it what it cost Andrew? What, what, reputation, yep. uh, roles and all that sort of stuff. But then you also heard conversations from councillors to say that, um, you know, if I'm one term, I'm one term. But the decision that they get to make uh, in their heart of hearts is that they feel that they're making the right decision. Mm. And again, whether you're for and against. Um, and I just feel like wherever there's an opportunity to do better, do better. I think that we are doing better by making that decision. I mean, Farrah, we could talk forever, but I want to save, I want to save some chat for next time we catch up because I feel like we'll be doing some more of these in the future. <laughs> but I'll, I'll ask you, bro, the, I guess the one question that I do ask everyone who sits in the chair across from me when I have these quarter door, it's the only, I guess, thing that's kind of scripted, if you will, or that I know that I'm going to ask. And that's, look, that's, and I think you can really speak to this, obviously, from your journey. There's someone listening right now who's in a dark space, they're not the greatest, what would your advice be? Bearing in mind you're not a mental health professional, but what would your advice be to help them climb out of what they're going through at the moment? Yeah, reach out. Reach out and know that there are people out there that love you, that really, really love you. And even though you're experiencing doubt, fear, a sense of hopelessness, but more importantly what you're feeling is hurt, there are people who love you. And if you need to reach out and you've got no one else to reach out to, reach out to me. Find me, reach out to me, 0211-462813. I care and I love uh, your ability to stand strong. You know, you were a blessing. You were a blessing. That's why you were brought into this life. And I think one thing that I love is that the two most um, uh, things that I value is family and friends. And you are part of that community. So reach out. There it is, Fano, Dini Moyahu, Councillor Dini Moyahu, should I say, the D-man uh, with the big fighter representing the Little Fighters Trust and all those other mean things that we talked about throughout our corridor. And of course, uh, getting to know the bro on a deeper, more personal level. Even giving out his phone number there, the bro is keen. I don't know if I'd be willing to go that far giving you fellas my phone number, but honestly, I can vouch um, the bro has definitely been there for me in times of need and to bounce things off him. So definitely 
Um, don't feel like he's just doing that. If you feel like you need someone to talk to, you've got the number there now, so make sure you reach out. Hey, do me a favor. Leave us a review on Facebook or Instagram or wherever you are listening, whether that is you know, through Apple or Spotify or iHeartRadio, Overcast, all of those platforms. Reviews, let people know what you think. Even if it's bad stuff, I want to know. I can only improve uh, if we know what people want to see more of. Speaking of seeing more of things... Uh, we might be getting Denny in to have a regular feature here on the podcast, have a regular catch-up. It's something that he has expressed that he wants to do, and I honestly can't see a reason why we shouldn't do that. So make sure you stick around for that too. But thank you for tuning in. We'll catch you next episode right here on Best Side.